dreaming saw you appear in the crowns of an oak here on the roof of the world but I fell out of nest on my featherless bag got up and found me So hello dear audience, this is the Two Scientists crew coming to you today from London Town. Um, our guest speaker today is uh, Richard Wingate who works at King's College in London. How are you Richard? I'm good, thank you very much. Yes, had a busy day. Oh, already, yeah? already spoken, given a talk this morning. Moved, oh, wow. a, moved a very large box across campus from one <laughs> end to the other. I uh, had another meeting and now I'm here. Yeah, so all yes. in all, it's been a, it's been a rip-roaring day. Yes, the glamorous lifestyle glamorous, of a, yes, a scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, as per usual, we like to start off our podcast with a little bit of history on our speaker. So, how did you get to where you are today? So, I was originally a PhD student um, at Oxford University in a neuroscience um, lab. Uh, before that, I'd been a biologist at Manchester University, so I moved down to Oxford Spent about six years there and then um, came to London to work at um, a place called Guy's Hospital, um, which is now part of King's College London. And I came to work with um, a chick a developmental biologist, someone who works on chicken eggs. And mm. at that time, this was the cutting edge of research. Um, there'd been a, a, a new um, wave of discoveries in the genetic field, the molecular field, about the way that genes work and proteins work and how this might be applied to looking at how embryos grow. And I just got in right at the start of that in, in Guy's Hospital. Um, and I've, I've sort of stayed here um, ever since, on and off. I spent a year and a half at Rockefeller University in New York, which was fantastic, um, working with someone called Mary Beth Hatton um, on the development of a structure called the cerebellum, which is involved in balance and um, coordination. And um, that work is then turned me towards looking at that part of the brain. I've been there ever since, really. Uh, and now my lab looks at evolution, you know, cell biology, um, some functional stuff, circuit formation, and we even have uh, work which is clinically uh, translatable as well, which is a big buzzword at the moment. So, um, mm -hmm. well, buzz, two buzzwords. Translatable, <laughs> clinically, clinically translatable. <laughs> Uh, which is important, and yeah, it's 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 important to us as well that our, our work is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're actually the head of anatomy here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and given that anatomy is potentially one of the oldest subjects in the kind of scientific history, how is it that this is still a thing? <laughs> yeah, how is anatomy still a thing? It's actually a thing that struggles a bit with its identity. So this department has been here since 1714. And I was really, I've been doing this job, head of anatomy, for about three years. And I was really taken with the historical significance of the role. It's, it's a 300-year-old post. In, in fact, it predates the university itself. It's been oh, wow. around longer uh, than the university. And some very famous um, scientists have been heads of anatomy here in the past as well. Um, uh, in fact, even the, the first head of anatomy here was uh, someone called William Cheseldon who did some amazing work on um, perception and what it's like to recover sight or see for the first time if you've been born blind. And it's really, you know, fundamental things. So that was very exciting. Um, anatomy itself um, is a subject you teach these days, but 
it has the potential to be a much broader um, subject, um, something that can pull in arts, humanities, literature, craft as well as as a all-encompassing view of the body and its relationship with its environment. So I have great hopes for anatomy that it can um, transform itself and reinvent itself as a new research subject, which is a bit of a hybrid. And along those lines, some of the research I do is very closely aligned to some of the teaching I do. Um, so for example, next year we're setting up a synthetic anatomy course, which is um, trying to apply imagination to anatomy and asking students to build things and print things in 3D wow. that might come right from the recesses of their mind. It might be fantastic anatomical views of what anatomy should be like, or they could be quite um, straightforward reconstructions of a piece of anatomy. But somehow or other, we're trying to just link, use it as a way of linking imagination to science. Wow, how exciting. But I suppose you can argue that since you're working on the brain, which is probably the most complex structure for us to try and understand how it works, how it's wired, uh, you probably have work for many, many years to come. Because I understand you, you don't just work on how the brain is wired, but the development itself. Is that correct? Yes. So the development is important in understanding uh, the brain's structure and its wiring because it starts off simple and gets complicated. So if you want to understand uh, the complicated thing that you're, you're left with um, uh, in, in our heads, then looking back at its origins and looking back at its roots is one way, um, quite an effective way of understanding uh, where or what the basic rules are for wiring the brain. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you do within your lab itself? What kind of techniques do you use? What, what's your group studying? So we study things that are related to hearing and things that are related to the system that regulates balance, the cerebellum. Um, and uh, just as I was saying before about the, the simplifying uh, concept of development, we found that these processes can all be traced back to one structure in the brain um, very early in development and uh, a set of interactions actually just between two cells oh, wow. um, that set up the entire cascade of patterning. It's called patterning when you apply a pattern to cells which are otherwise um, undecided about what they're going to be. So these two cell types talk to each other and they set up these vast networks of neurons in the brain. So we trace that back in development and also we can use um, different species in the way that they've developed differently to try and untangle some of the processes. So we also use evolution. So we look at zebrafish, mm -hmm. turtles, alligators, sharks, paddlefish, zebrafish, mice, and chickens. Oh, wow. So every, all these species uh, have come through the lab at some point, and xenopus as well. So as many different species as we can find. Um, mainly at the moment, works on mouse and chickens and zebrafish. Mm -hmm. So how does one work on an alligator or a shark, both of which are rather pertinent to yeah. Florida, actually? Sharks <laughs> actually are very easy to get hold of in oh, the really? UK. Yeah, so it's quite easy to dive um, down, just fish them out. Um, dogfish, or mm -hmm. uh, they're called cat sharks in the States. Okay. Spotted cat shark, Scylla rhinus canicula. Um, they are really common around the coast of okay. the UK and particularly in Scotland, so we have no problems getting hold of those. Um, turtles and alligators, we have to go to Florida, where I have a 
collaborator, Marty Cohn, mm-hmm. and he works at Florida University, and we go down, and uh, in alligator season, we hope to go out and catch some eggs. Oh, nice. Um, and it's also a place where we can get uh, turtle eggs delivered really easily from Louisiana as well. Um, so they're shipped there, and we do some work in Florida every summer. Okay. I assume there's no kind of conflict with the, the kind of the, the turtle species that are kind of dying out right now. No, these are all commercial aquarium species. And in fact, the conflict is that they are a pest. Oh, and so you can okay. only breed them in Louisiana. They're shipped to Florida, but they're quite strict controls on where these uh, animals are allowed to be um, bred and farmed. So um, we could get them shipped to the UK. I'm not sure they'd survive the, the mm-hmm. transit, but... Um, yeah, they're more of a pest than a threatened species. Okay. So what is it that you find in terms of the, the differences between these species that help you understand about the development? So these species have, um, there's, there's, there's two elements actually. One is uh, that we're looking at with hearing is that there's a, a simple circuit for working out where something is in space, in horizontal space, whether it's to your left or to your right. Mm-hmm. When you hear a, a noise, do you turn your head towards it? That circuit has developed independently in mammals and in chickens and this is an example of something which is analogous so it looks pretty similar it functions pretty similarly and we're just discovering that it actually develops very differently so it's a solution that's been reached twice in evolution at least twice um, but it's been reached by different means mm-hmm. and it's ended up in the same part of the head looking very similar but actually it's got an independent origin so that's something that's very interesting to us and the second thing is um, for the balance system, uh, the cerebellum of different uh, animals it can be very, very foliated. So it can be folded into lots and lots of different um, uh, troughs and peaks, um, <laughs> like a big bundle of ribbon that's been squished into the skull. Um, that would be us. Mm-hmm. Or it can be a simple flat plate, which is what you see in, in some lizards. The thing that makes the difference between those two structures, whether it's big and folded or tiny and almost like residual, is the division of one particular cell type. Mm -hmm. And understanding that division, division means proliferation, how often they divide, Mm -hmm. um, how many you get at the end of development. Um, Understanding that might become easier if we look between two species who have decided to do things slightly differently. So this comes a bit of kind of like a conceptual issue here. Mm. You can find out which genes are needed to make a cell divide. That's quite easy in development. It's quite mm-hmm. easy to find out the whole cascade, what's being switched on where. But it's not until you look between species that do things differently, you find out which, actually, which of those genes is actually important. So you've got to, if, if you want to find out which one is the key one, which one yep. is the critical one, you've got to look at evolution at nature to see how it's been done differently. Uh-huh. So um, this particular cell type is also, this is a translatable element here, is also the cell type that gives rise to the majority of childhood brain tumours. So understanding okay. why its division is controlled in certain ways is important in a clinical sense. You've worked in all these different animal models, right? The, the idea of cancer research is you work in mice because you still want to understand humans. And from the conversation you had at the beginning, translational research is something you do. So you want to understand humans through animal models, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we find very often is that whatever you discover in a mice doesn't really quite translate into yeah. it's still the cheapest and some other things actually do translate so that's why people keep doing that of all the things you study um, in, in different animals um, is there something universal or really there's nothing universal and every model tells you something completely new is 
So, is, is, are there universals in biology? I think there are. Um, what the models are showing us is sometimes that solutions are reached in the same way to different problems, maybe using slightly different materials, but there are concepts or core principles of, say, development of, or cancer, which are there. Now, the problem becomes, if you just point out, when you look at the very specific elements, you know, pieces of that jigsaw, and they're not quite the same. Mm -hmm. And so mouse turns out to be quite a derived species. That means it's quite far off. If you imagine an evolutionary tree, mm -hmm. mouse is right down on the tip and quite a long way away from humans. And there are um, some genetic pathways and some gene pathways which are better modeled in a chicken um, for a human than in a mouse. And that's quite a revelation. You think, well, why is that? And particularly some of the pathways I work on. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> there's, you know, dinosaurs, there's, there's not much, there's, there isn't much point in looking at a mouse and maybe it would be better to look at it at a chicken. Um, it's, they're usually though, I think, you know, if you're, if you love your science, you're interested in core principles and those core principles do transcend the particular kind of gene or the particular kind of species. And that's what we're always looking for, is trying to find those core principles. Um, and, and my field is development. Um, and evolution is really useful in that sense for development. Um, but yeah, there, there are problems still with the translatability of work and it, it comes as you get really into the very, very most fine grain details of working of a, of a particular gene, for example. So, and this is one of the things that I was thinking, which is that often it's easy to translate. And in, in my field, we talk about qualitative versus quantitative measurements, right? Mm. So qualitative would be... Uh, well, as, as the specimen might suggest, uh, things that are basically more in terms of quality, whereas qualitative can actually refer to numbers, something you can point yes. very specifically. Yeah. And uh, if you're doing translational work, that usually involves aiming for a particular gene, a particular pathway, and, and using that in, in a clinical sense. So is, is, um, are there qualitative things that we can learn from all these range of models you're working with that mm -hmm. we can use? In, in, in clinical research. Yes, I, uh, so are, yes, are there qualitative, are there qualities that, that transcend species yeah, yeah. that become kind of fundamentals for us? I think, I think so, yes. And I think the, um, uh, the lessons that we learn from a zebrafish, which is really about as far away from a human embryo as you can get, are really important. They do develop very differently. A zebrafish is a very different creature mm. to um, a human, and I know exactly where to stop um, <laughs> in terms of trying to make, draw exact parallels. Um, but I also know where the lessons that you learn from a zebrafish are. You're never going to learn anything in a better way. That's the right thing, mm -hmm. the right species to answer that particular question. So it's almost a given in a way that though that kind of research would be um, applicable. Um, it's not just uh, we can't work on human embryos we can't do human research it's actually there are many reasons why you wouldn't want to do that anyway yeah. there, are, there are lots and lots of good reasons to say that's just not the right way to ask this question I'll, I'll go to a plant if i really want to understand how stresses and strains work in, inside a cell and over long term I'll, maybe I'll, maybe a plant cell is the right way to do it you know there's there's uh, that's why the whole of biology is there and just to focus and say well this you know, the opposite to your question would be, mm. if I want to understand about humans, I'm going to work on humans. And there have been some really interesting studies um, on humans. And in fact, 
Uh, see if I can get this right. If you looked across, because there are so many of us, that it's likely that every kind of different mutation which you can survive, actually grow and thrive and grow up, is out there somewhere. So yeah, as a population, the human population is a great experiment waiting to be looked at. And that's why <laughs> you know, cloning individual genomes and relating it to their, so someone's gene profile, having a complete understanding of their genetic profile, and then relating it to what they do, how they feel, when they're ill, when they're not ill, is, is you know, really interesting. It's not just clinically relevant. It's a great resource. Um, so um, there are questions we can ask of human beings, um, but um, that is not the only way. Yeah. yeah. If Douglas Adams were to be believed, we are the experiment and the mice are the experimenters. Yeah, right? so <laughs> yeah and it, there, there's an element of truth in, in that. And a couple of scientists who said, you know, taken that, probably read the book, mm -hmm. Hitchhiker's Guide, and said, yeah, actually they're right. If I can just get out there and find strange inbred families, and this particular, <laughs> this particular scientist, uh, uh, yeah, Chris Walsh in Boston, said, "Well, we went to Saudi Arabia, we went to Africa, and we also went to Wales." Now, Wales <laughs> is part of the UK. I've never thought of it as being a particularly inbred mm -hmm. part of it. That's where I come from. And, uh, yeah, so just to pick. Um, strange uh, inbred communities, tribal communities, and pick whales was rather an odd one. So we were chatting a little bit before about your um, career development. You said you were at Rockefeller. So tell us a little bit more about your time in the States, because you said you missed that rather. Yeah, I think what, what's totally, totally um, uh, tr transparently true about the States is this um, thing of can-do, can-do attitude to science is something that in the kind of slower and more thoughtful and contemplative British environment is sometimes sadly lacking. Of course, can-do can make you go a little bit too far and too fast, maybe be a bit too ruthless in the way that you do science, maybe move on too quickly before you've really explored something, move on to the next thing, always be looking ahead. But there's something totally seductive and addictive about that feeling that you're on the crest of a rave, driving forward. And so every time I go back to the States now, I just bathe <laughs> in that feeling of can do. It's, it's wonderful for us to get over there and just feel that enthusiasm again. Not that we're not enthusiastic, we're just a little bit more cautious and circumspect. And um, yeah, so I miss it. I wish I was back there sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but you get to travel there often enough, I guess. Yeah, we get to travel a, a bit. I mean, there's there's one big meeting every year, Society for Neuroscience annual meeting, which is uh, 30,000 neuroscientists congregating. And that's really exciting. Some people hate it. I love it. I think it's amazing to see that many people. It's quite humbling, actually, to see that many people interested in something you're interested in. Um, and then another couple of times a year, maybe, if I'm lucky. But mm -hmm. it, it's not enough. Not enough. No. <laughs> So as well as your scientific work, you have a very big interest in public engagement. Can you tell us more about how you started with that? I started public engagement through an arts collaboration uh, a number of years ago now. Um, an artist came into our department, he wandered around, he was looking for someone to talk to and um, I sort of grabbed him and dragged him into the office and <laughs> bombarded him with all my uh, pictures and drawings that I'd done of brain cells and um, we started talking about um, yeah how the brain is constructed and uh, the, he was developing a work of 
um, a work of art, an installation which was going into a museum at the London Science Gallery. And for whatever reason, the way we talked about the, uh, the brain, the uh, conversations we had translated into something that was very powerful. And um, that piece of art, it's for 12 years, has never not been shown somewhere in the world since. Oh, wow. So it's, it's continuously on tour. It's got a life of its own. Mm -hmm. It's called Magic Forest. It, it appears all over the world at different points. It's two projectors and three screens. Uh, and from that, actually, I went on to see, I think I began to see that public engagement was a really cool way of reflecting on science. And so the discussions that I started having with artists and the discussions that I'd have in public meetings and talking to people about what I do started to become as important, maybe more important sometimes than the discussions I was having with fellow scientists because they could be more free-ranging, mm -hmm. uh, more exploratory, more imaginative. And I, ever since, I think I've always had one or two collaborations running with artists at the moment um, with someone called Suki Chan mm -hmm. who's looking at uh, perception um, and also a someone who knits and darns oh, well. Cecilia Pym uh -huh. and um, I think the the secret is really getting to know each other and having a real good conversation and both of these pieces of work are really really excellent and Celia's knitting and darning project has again you know just gathered international attention you, mm -hmm. you don't know why it happens and I think it's because there's a mutual interest in each other if you find someone who's got mutual interest in each other's work it really kicks off and there's a sort of magic to it people get interested in that dynamic and I think as scientists you know the worst thing I can do is start talking about non-steroid receptor signaling oh, pathways <laughs> because it, it, it's it means absolutely nothing. It means nothing to some fellow scientists as well. We, yep. Sometimes we pretend that we actually all understand each other and you just want them to say, just tell me what you're talking yes. about. I don't understand a word you're saying. Yeah, yes. And we're very shy about doing that and we try and pretend that we, yeah, we nod. We, I, think, I think we, um, it's interesting, there's two levels of communication for science. There is a formal presentation. It's a very formal side of publication. Maybe there's three levels and it's a formal presentation. But what, I'm also really interested in the informal uh, communication angles between scientists and I've done some non-science research looking at how scientists develop their own personality mm -hmm. in terms of the particularly the cartoons that they draw so we draw cartoons to explain our work we draw them yep. scraps of paper yep. we draw them on whiteboards and they're very different from the formal cartoons mm -hmm. that we draw and I've written a bit about this and we looked at it in a teaching environment and again it rather surprisingly again I think it probably reflects the genuineness of the interest in it which is like I'm really interested in this I really want to explore it but that piece of work got picked up quite widely in a magazine called Science and the mm -hmm. international magazine the Atlantic magazine as well picked up oh, on wow. it as um, it, it, from a really small scale study just saying well how do science, scientists talk to each other informally and it's very different yep. to how we do it in a formal sense and we yeah. don't we're not very reflective scientists. Yeah. We don't think about these things very often. Yeah. I guess it depends on how the collaborations are done because I think David does this all the time because he's he's not a biologist. He spends all his time talking to biologists, at which point their, their life is like at a blackboard, at a whiteboard. Yeah. Um, he's going to nod silently because he doesn't like being recorded. Well, <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the revelations to me was mm -hmm. as part of his arts collaborations was going to a non 
science conference about science. Oh, and you think, oh. well, just <laughs> a second. I went to Amsterdam, so could you come and speak at this conference? I said, well, I don't know. Yeah, of course, Society for Science, Literature and the Arts. I don't know what this is <laughs> at all. And turned up and there's a whole group of people out there, <laughs> out there on the outside of science who are really interested in what scientists do. And they're having conferences about what we do and how we do it and how we speak to each other and how we conceptualize the world. And um, it just made me realize that we are such an introverted group. We don't know anything about the history of science. We don't mm -hmm. know anything about the culture of science, yep. the sociologies of science, the ethnography of science. And I'm using words there that come from humanities because I, what I did a couple of years ago was I did a master's degree in humanities. Mm -hmm. um, just again, just to try and understand a bit more about what we are as scientists. Yep. And um, yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary. Yep. It's like being inside a box looking inwards and not seeing there's a whole world outside. Yeah, I, I think thankfully more scientists are starting to realise this, this is a no-go. You have to be able to communicate to other people. And I think more and more of them are appreciating the value of doing that too. As you say, you... Once you're talking to scientists, you have, I think you go into autopilot. You you start talking about the regular things. It's like, oh, okay, so now I'm going to attach this pathway to what I'm doing. Oh, this is an interesting technique. I'll use this. But um, a lot of speakers have said to us from our events that, yeah, this, this is completely eye-opening. And these people have very sensible questions, which have just never occurred to me before yeah. because they weren't explained to me in a simple sentence. Well, it's a very famous quote from Richard Feynman, which most... I was going to say most people know, I don't know if you know, but he, he said, would I ever give up teaching? And the answer is absolutely no. So Richard Feynman is a Nobel uh, Prize winning physicist, very famous, very humorous writer about science. And he said he'd never give up teaching because it's students who ask you questions in the neighborhood of problems. They don't ask you about the problem itself, they ask you in those really productive hinterlands of a problem. And mm -hmm. you don't get that from other scientists. So yeah. teaching, like public engagement, is a really important thing for scientists to do. And I look at scientists who just do their research and I actually do feel a little bit sorry for them <laughs> that they're not getting all this really valuable uh, material, this potential material from their students or from the public. Mm -hmm. And they're you know, crippled by it, I think. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> we'd like to say thank you so much for your time today. It's, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure and really interesting. Um, and we look forward to doing great things with you. Thank you. moved to this chicken lab and I opened so you can open up the shell of a chicken with a pair of scissors and you can look inside it and what you can see in there is the embryo growing and when you look at two days after the egg's been fertilized and it's been sitting in a warm room for two days the embryo is very small it's about half a centimeter and it just consists of a thin transparent tube which is wider at one end where the brain is going to be and then dotted along at either side there are things called somites which are what the muscles are going to be so mm -hmm. you just have a tube with some dots either side and then one end you got the head and I was looking in the egg one day and I looked down I could see the somites I could see the tube and I couldn't see the head 
and I looked at it. I thought, um, that's incredible. I've come. This is a headless chicken <laughs> mutant. Uh, nowadays, we know there are headless mutants. Uh, something like a gene called ATX2. If you knock it out, you, you get a mouse without a head. I just thought, this is incredible. So that, I went and ran off to find my boss, who um, is a very famous scientist called Andrew Lumsden, fellow of the Royal Society, one of the most eminent developmental biologists uh, of our era. Ran, grabbed him out of his office, said, Andrew, Andrew, I've got this headless chicken mutant. You've got to come and have a look. Dragged him into the mice, sat him down. He looked at the egg. Looked at me, he turned it around very slowly and uh, said, yeah, have a look down there. And I've been looking at the tail and I've been looking at the whole embryo upside down. And uh, yeah, I, I felt really, really, really foolish at that point. And that was probably the second week I was in the lab. Uh, he didn't say very much. He just stood up and walked off. And uh, yeah. That was that. That was that. I'm still here. Yes. Well, I mean, it didn't hamper your career any. <laughs> I don't know. What, I don't know where I could be now. What, what I could be doing if it hadn't been for that. Yeah. just been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at 2scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in Oh,